Hey everyone, this is Jordan Van Trump, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. Just wanted to let everyone know this podcast is sponsored by the company I started right out of college called AgSwag. I'm sure like many of the other disruptors on this podcast, I started this company searching for cooler stuff and better service. One of my first tasks when I got out of college was finding some cool hats for my dad's business, as my family and their friends always struggled to source quality swag throughout the years. I started this company only making a few hats and have been fortunate enough to meet some of the top business leaders in the ag industry along the way. I've worked with some of the biggest disruptors currently in the space, such as FBN, Benson Hill, Pivot Bio, Pattern Ag, Holganics, as well as many veterans such as Cargill, Nutrien, Dairy Farmers of America, Kent Corp, CGB, Helena, and the list goes on and on. Throughout this journey of providing swag to various companies in agriculture, I've had the opportunity to learn some of the best business lessons, hacks, marketing strategies, and many other things to take my company to scale and become more successful throughout the years. My intentions of this series is to bring on guests that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years to tell their story and hopefully help you build your business in the future. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. We are on here today with Jim Walter, Jamie Walter, and Nick Nagel with uh, Whiskey Acres. So uh, with that, I'd like to welcome all three of them to the show and they are sitting in their uh, conference room right now. So, good afternoon, everybody. How are you? Perfect. I guess we'll, uh, I guess we'll start with Jim. Um, how did the farm get started? Did you start the farm? Did your dad start the farm? Or no, my my father started the farm here in Northern Illinois. He actually grew up on a vegetable farm in uh, Southern Ohio. Uh, my my mother was had actually moved into this area and uh, when they met she was she was uh, living uh, in near DeKalb with her uh, large family nine children and met my dad in Ohio actually they had some common uh, relatives from, from uh, that area and that's how we got to DeKalb my my father then uh, Worked with his father-in-law uh, after the marriage, and uh, and really got quite progressive. He was one of the uh, first to uh, put a tractor in motion in this area, and uh, worked with his father-in-law, who was quite successful in uh, buying land and had a dairy, large group of uh, family to help run the dairy, and. Ultimately, each one of those children, and my father was the, married to the oldest in the family, uh, ventured off on their own farms. And so he bought this farm where we're sitting today in around 1941. He, uh, he then continued to farm this with a diversified farm originally, and then was one of the first in the area to uh, grow it completely uh, grain. Uh, he, he was, he was uh, told at the time that it would never work. But, uh, so he had a grain farm here, and he managed to make that work. And then he farmed with one of your brothers, who's just peeking over your shoulder there. So. Yeah, there was, there was eight in the family, five boys, and uh, excuse me, six boys. And uh, the oldest three started farming with my father as they got old enough. And uh, I was one of those. And ultimately, uh, as they retired, 
I was left behind here and uh, took over the farming operation. Are we out of time yet? <laughs> oh, <still. laughs> but that's how that's how this came about. And uh, so Jamie had a short life. I can let you tell tell you uh, his, about his escapades. But he had a short life as an attorney and came back to the farm. And at that time, I was in the in the uh, late seventies, and I was very concerned about making the farm profitable and was doing a lot of the management end of things with my brothers. We decided as we took over that we needed to make some changes, do things a little differently, and we were going to have to do more with less. And so I was looking for a way to upgrade, to do, to take in the products that we had and move up the food chain with them, add value to them. I'll, I'll jump in here just a, real quick. But when I came back to farming in 20, 2000. In the year 2000, uh, we, like Dad said, we were looking for ways to diversify. We, we're pretty close to Chicago, 60 miles due west, and, and we're getting a lot of you know, urban encroachment out here, and we rented a lot of our ground. And so we had a little concern that we were going to have enough acreage as some of our land got developed um, that we didn't own. And so we, we worked hard to add value, and we actually looked at a number of things, bakery goods, popcorn, uh, settled on distilling. And um, that was led us to bring in Nick on. Nick and I were involved in that and some seed uh, businesses together. Um, Nick represented Golden Harvest at the time. We were a dealer for them as well as others. And uh, Nick was looking to make a change. So we brought Nick on. He's got some experience in, in marketing and PR. And then uh, 2013, we incorporated. In 2014, uh, we, uh, I, well, I guess 2013, we hired. Uh, Dave Pickerell, Dave was a kind of the, he's a former master of sort makers, Mark, and, and was a consultant. We brought him on to teach us everything he knew about distilling, and we fired up distill the end of 2014, and this, we've been ramping production ever since. And just briefly, my, my family uh, farms about 100 miles straight south of Chicago. Uh, one of my favorite facts is that my great-grandfather farmed 840 acres with horses and his kids. So it was a big operation before they were called BTOs. Uh, then he had too many kids. We had too many kids, and uh, and this generation came to. My dad still runs, you know, our portion of the family. He needs help, but doesn't need a partner. So went to college, got into the seed business, and met Jim and Jamie, and you know, always had kind of a an entrepreneurial spirit myself, but just a um, never, you know, never the geographic opportunity to do so uh, on our family farm. I was fortunate enough to meet up with Jim and Jamie and and be able to. You know, be part of the conception of this and, and be at it from the beginning to pull the trigger to, to create something that's really special. So what the uh, what the farm look like growing up, Jamie, on your end? Was it pretty? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I grew up, you know, right next door, um, it was it was my dad and, and two uncles for about as long as I can remember, and it was a mostly a corn soybean. You know, rotation not dissimilar from most of the stuff around here. We no livestock at that time. They did um, get involved in kind of one of the things. They were always very in innovative, and they were involved a little bit in some veggie crops. There was some cannery uh, uh, business in the area with Del Monte with uh, sweet corn and peas a little bit, and they also got involved in actually land applying vegetable waste uh, uh, back in the day, um, and uh, that was kind of innovative. And then. Um, uh, you know, we, we dabbled in some of those high oil and GMO 
uh, corn products, premium products uh, for a while. And then we were heavily involved in the seed industry. So we were a multi-brand seed dealer, of course, being here in DeKalb. DeKalb was a big part of that. We also produced seed for them as well. So that was all kind of growing up. And then uh, uh, coming back here to the farm uh, was just kind of a continuation of that. You know, I guess one of the fortunate things really for me was, you know, I stepped in to a very successful farming operation and none of us quit our day jobs, right? So when we started the distilling, it was a bolt-on. It was a and this rather than, you know, doing something completely different. So that made it viable for us to get started. So you, How about so, now? Are, are you guys full time now, Jamie? I'm sorry. Could you say that again, Kevin? Are you guys full time with it now? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I kind of joke that I'm full time farming and distilling anymore, but the truth of the matter is probably on my day to day, I'm, I'm over here on the distilling side more than I am, you know, in the spring and the fall, I'm out in the field, but uh, dad is still very active, uh, especially with the farming operation. And we have, you know, some excellent employees here that, enable me to, to step away and, and really manage this side of the business. You know, it, in, in an eight short years, we just celebrated our eighth birthday. And in eight short years, this is actually the bigger, the bigger operation today is in the distillery. Wow. Yeah. Good. So you, so you went off the school to be a lawyer, Jamie. Is that what I heard? I did. I did. Yeah. I'm a attorney by trade, uh, practiced for a short time, frankly hated it. Um, really, uh, wanted to make a change. And um, what led to me coming back to the farm was really a, a approaching my dad and my uncle at the time and saying, hey, I want to make a change. And my uncle had announced that he was going to retire in two years. So there was an opportunity for me to come back and kind of pay my dues, earn some respect, work as a farm laborer here on the farm full time for two years. And then when my uncle retired, I, I you know bought him out. Uh, had some good financing here, family financing and, and uh, Although nothing was free, but uh, nothing should be, and and uh, was able to buy my uncle out, retire that debt, and uh, proceed from there. Cool. Why do why do you why do you want to get out of farming in the first place? I guess not out completely out, but you wanted to go your own way. It seemed like yeah, not so much get out of farming, but you know, I I, I went off to college right after the eighties, right? I mean, you know, I I, I graduated high school in nineteen ninety. And, uh, you know, that was pretty lean times uh, on the farm. And that was, you know, that stuck in my head pretty, pretty hard. And um, I didn't really feel like I had a passion to farm. I mean, a lot of people do, right? They have a passion for farming. And, and I have more of a passion for entrepreneurialism. You know, that's my area. Um, and uh, I like business. And so I went off to study law. And my focus was agriculture and ag business. So that was I went to Drake and our agricultural law center and really my education was designed to help other farmers succeed in their businesses. So it wasn't quite as far away as you might think. I, I didn't get into a lot of that other law stuff like criminal and family law and any of that stuff. <laughs> exactly. So did you practice law? I did. I did for uh, about two years, not quite. After about a year, I was sure I had enough, but it took me almost another year to extract myself from that. <laughs> So, so then you came back and then what was like, I guess you guys said you came up with all these different ideas. What what was like the main pivotal point you guys came up with? Like, we got to figure out a, a new way to make some more money. We got to start bringing in some more chips on this farm. Well, so there were a couple things. I mean, you know, in those early 2000s, there was quite a real estate boom 
that was happening around here. You know, going into that 2008, nine, when we had the real estate crash, that kind of changed all that. But prior to that, you know, there was an awful lot of land selling right around us by the square foot. And uh, it's hard to compete when you don't own that land. You know, I mean, it was getting, you know, reinvested um, in, you know, tax deferred exchanges, uh, land bases were getting smaller. You know, we didn't really want to pick up and move and start over somewhere else. And we needed to figure out, you know, how we were going to extract more value from every acre. And, and uh, you know, kind of some business school 101, dad and I sat down, you know, I don't even know if you remember this, but, you know, 20 years ago and, and did a SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, business 101, and kind of took a look at, at where we were as a farm and where we thought we needed to be. And we came down to really two choices. One was to get big and, and try to extract, you know, economies of scale that would allow us to compete. Or instead of doing that, you know, we could try to extract more dollars from every acre and, and it was okay if we got smaller. And that was the path that we chose. I like that. I like that. How many acres did you guys start with when you first rolled out the whiskey idea? Pretty similar to where we are now, really. Uh, a couple thousand, a couple thousand acres. You know, that moves around like most farms, a few hundred acres up and down all the time, but a couple thousand. You, you put all that into the whiskey right out of the gates? No. No, that's no, what I'm saying. What'd you, put, what'd you talk your dad into putting into the whiskey bet? That's the one I want to hear. <laughs> Well, the, the, one of the things that had taken place during the late 80s and early 90s is we had some good years here. We had done very well. So we had built up some capital, and we had to decide whether we wanted to deploy that into land or what we were going to do with it. And that was one of the reasons we went the way we did. And, and we, uh, we, we were able to do that, continue to farm, and, and start the distillery. The farm fed us, and we didn't have to push the distillery out into the public as quickly. We were able to move it at our own pace. And that was that was very important to making this distillery successful. My question, Jamie, and you know where I'm going with it, is most of our farm families, uh, the, the son or the daughter come back and they've got some ideas, but the dad isn't, isn't uh, overly keen on taking that type of risk or wager. And you know, what was the, obviously you and your dad got a, a different relationship than, than, than many do. And he was willing to take the risk on you. And it's really a bet on you is what it was a bet on. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. Right. I mean. Dad, dad often likes to remind me that he tried to give me just enough rope to hang myself. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, I was very fortunate again, like I said, I stepped into a very successful farm that had a history of innovation. I mean, you know, and, and that wasn't changing. I mean, we were always, you know, as a, as an entity, we were always looking for the next thing and looking ahead. And, and I probably bring even a little bit more of that because that's, you know, my legal training in some ways, my personality is, is looking way out. You know, I'm the, I'm the three to five years down the road guy here. And, and so we're always looking at where where we think the next thing is going to be and, and that's where we focus as a farm and, and frankly that's where we're focused now as a distillery is you know looking way out um and trying to predict what the future is going to hold and that's that's a tricky part but that's what i like 
So, so safe to say the Walters family is not afraid of risk and a, a little change. <laughs> no, no. My philosophy has always been, and I would, I would throw this out there to others as well, that uh, if you, if you don't, as Jamie would say, give your kids enough rope to hang themselves, they'll never be successful. You know, to, to, to have them walk into something that is successful and just carry it along is, is not very rewarding. You have to have the ability to make mistakes and feel that you're actually constructing something. And so you, you give you give those risks, you take those risks. Yeah, I think every generation likes to feel like they're a builder, right? You know, that you've, you've been successful on your own merits, even if you've had a leg up, maybe by your family or your history, it's nice to feel like you succeed on your own. And I think that's one of the things that Nick appreciates, but stepping in here too, is that, you know, he's been a, he's been a part of this, but it's something different than his own family farm. And, I don't speak for you, but it's very rewarding to, to be part of something that started from scratch. You know, We're certainly blessed to, to work with Jim and Jamie and, and live off, the, you know, operate off the coattails of their success. But, um, you know, that success in their operations hasn't, you know, wasn't because wasn't the reason we've been successful here. You know, we started from scratch and, and had to come up with new ideas and new tactics and, and bigger plans and longer term plans that have gotten us to where we are. You know, it's interesting to have these, for me anyway, have these conversations talking about our success uh, that doesn't exactly, you know, I, I know we've been successful, but it doesn't feel like it sometimes. You know, that's, uh, well, you know, any fast growing business, right? You know, I mean, we're, it seems like every dollar we make, we pour back right, right back into the business um, and, and, uh, and its growth. And so sometimes it, you know, it's, it's hot and heavy. We're, you know, we're, we're asset rich, we're cash poor, you know, it's just like a lot of fast growing businesses, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're a little bit chasing right now as we continue to expand and grow and look for new markets, and new products and expansion here with our own physical footprint. And sometimes Nick's, Nick's right, you know, we're very successful, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm still, I'm still driving a Toyota minivan. <laughs> Yeah, Jim, Jim mentioned a lot about you making mistakes and Jamie, you mentioned some stuff about trying popcorn or thinking about popcorn when you came back to the farm and kind of came up with this idea of the whiskey, was it always like, we got to do whiskey, we got to do whiskey, or do you, do you have some other ideas before you did the whiskey? No, a couple of things there that I think are probably important is, is, is number one, I actually, before we got into this, I had a, uh, a, a, kind of a passion really for wine. Um, my, my wife and I uh, really enjoyed wine. Um, I, uh, we had good friends that did and so much so that they had a wine, our friends had a wine shop and we partnered with them and opened our own wine label. So we would go out to Napa Valley and, and buy grapes uh, and then uh, take them into a custom crushing facility in Napa and make wine for our own label um, and then import it into Illinois and sell it through high-end wine shops like their wine shop. And that kind of gave us a little exposure to the, to the industry and the alcohol industry. And, um, you know, it was a hobby business. It wasn't a full fledged business, but it did make a little money and it gave us a, a tax deductible reason to vacation back and forth in Napa. And, um, but it also taught me a number of things, right? Uh, and one of the key things was we all take for granted. I think if you drink wine, that different varieties of grapes, impact the flavor of wine. You know, a, a Cabernet Sauvignon grape and a Pinot Noir grape are both red grapes. But if you enjoy wine, you'll know that they're very different flavor profiles. Um, 
we suspected, especially with our genetic background here in, in growing and selling seed, that there were probably flavor differences between certain corns in making bourbon. And in the U.S., you know, bourbon is a U.S. product. Um, basically, there are six or eight major distillers in the U.S. that make like, you know, 100 brands of whiskey and they buy grain by the, you know, the train, train car load. And so it's all co-mingled. I mean, you and your listeners understand that commodity grains all co-mingled. And so it's the, the bourbons, you know, before we got involved, the bourbons that were being produced were the equivalent of red table wine or jug wine. You know, it was just a mixture of different varieties. So we started doing research on independent and individual varieties and seeing what we thought might contribute to flavor and make superior products. And that led us to using originally a number of commercial yellow dent varieties. And we still use several that we like the flavor of, but you know, increasingly what we're finding is, is things like this. I don't know if you can see, but this is a bourbon made out of blue popcorn. Um, we're finding great flavors, especially in heirloom corn. So um, Bloody Butcher, Glass Gem, uh, Green Oaxacan corn, its parent comes from Mexico. We're, we're growing all those things here now and making individual varieties of bourbon out of them. And, and it's, it's taken the industry by storm. And that's kind of where our niche is. I think another piece to, to know, though, is that the craft distilling movement is still in its infancy. Um, I think the first craft distiller in the state of Illinois was, was in 2008. And up until 2013, the limits on production was about 5,000 gallons. And so, you know, the having an awareness of the politics and the policy and how those were evolving and these ideas we came up with, Jamie came up with, um, coincided with the industry, the distilling industry evolving and growing and, and really, you know, having the volume, uh, the opportunity to have a volume to, to grow, to scale, to be profitable. Prior to that, it was just an expensive hobby. So how, how exactly you get drug into this business, Nick? Did uh, Jamie approach you or was, were you like, man, I got I to gotta be a part of this? I guess what stage did you become a part of the business as well? To make a, a fairly long story short, I uh, you know worked in uh, the seed business for a handful of years and um, was fairly successful at that and was getting some job offers from some competitive companies and um, had one of those offers that was kind of a life changer. It was going to be a big fish in a small pond. And, uh, but still want to be mindful of the moment. So, you know, I had a lot of respect for Jim and Jamie. And we've talked a lot about how they're, they're not like most typical farmers. And so I reached out to Jamie and literally said, here's what I'm pay being paid and what I'm doing today. And here's what I'm being offered. And here's why I think it's a good idea. And here's why I think it's a bad idea. What do you guys think? And in so many words, Jamie said to me, for that kind of money, I'd take the job. So I went home that night and, you know, my wife and I started you know, looking at new zip codes to relocate for this and car shopping and all that stuff. And then the next day, uh, Jamie calls me and says, have you, have you taken the job yet? And I said, I haven't, but I'm probably going to. And uh, he said, well, give it one more day. I'd like you to swing out here. Dad and I have an idea we want to throw by you. And, and in short was, you know, we need some help on the farm. We know you can help with that. We want somebody to run the seed business. We know you can do that. And uh, we want to look into opening a distillery and we'd like to be part of, of helping us put a plan together. And if we decide to move forward, um, you know, you, you'll have the opportunity to be part of it. So let's just say I went home that evening and had a very different conversation with my wife <laughs> than I had the, the night before. And, you know, God bless her. You know, her comment was, well, you know, you can, you can succeed at this and never have to think about working for somebody else again. 
or uh, if you fail at this, then, you know, all these opportunities that you have today will be there when, when you decide to need them again. So, um, you know, that's, that's the long version or the short version of this. And, and, you know, it's been a hundred miles an hour ever since and I'm very glad we made the decision. So are you full-time with the distillery now? Or you, you do kind of everything with. I, I, um, mostly distillery operations. Um, I still have a seed business and then I, uh, I sneak down to help my dad, uh, with, uh, spring and fall harvest as much as I can. The division of labor around here is pretty much, I, I serve as the chief executive and Nick is our chief operating officer. He kind of manages the production side and, and he's out in the field uh, with sales um, and, and uh, helping with the distributor and, and dad, he's our, he's our uh, strategic council, strategic council. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. He keeps a coffee pot running and, and, and frankly, yeah, I, I, I jest a little bit, but he's, he's still, he's more involved <coughs> in the farm on a day-to-day -day basis than I am. Sounds like ours, ours, Jordan. I mean, Jamie would get a kick out of it. You know, we hire people on They're They got a big title in a role. And the next thing they might be out at my house and uh, we're laying some concrete or uh, grading something off. They're like, how in the hell did I, how did I end hey. up here at this spot? And it's like, well, this is just all part of the fun guys. How many so, chief executives do you know that still scrub toilets, right? That's right. I mean, Hey, we got to do everything. You know, it's that's just right. how it is. It's how it is. So family business. <laughs> you got to pick it, up. It is. It is amazing. You know, when we started the distillery eight years ago, you know, you're, you're looking at the team. I mean, there were yeah. the three of us. That was it. And I think, I think Monday we hired our 32nd employee. Wow. And so, you know, I mean, it, it is, it is growing. And I'll, you know, a number of them are part-time and yeah. helping with our, our visitor center and our public face. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's different when you're managing a lot of people and, and, and you, you look at what you do differently too. I can imagine for sure. How'd you guys start the business? Did you, did you build the distillery and then start doing it or did you kind of outsource it to begin with? So we Still took inside. kind of a take, you know, probably whiskey's our main, I mean, basically it's almost all we make is, is whiskey. Whiskey's a distilled spirit made from grain and we pledge to the marketplace that we will grow all of our own grain. So if it's in a bottle, we grew it and we distilled it. And, and that's very different than most because most distilleries in their infancy, you know, it, it's, it's got an age. I mean, this bottle of whiskey is four to five years old before it ever sees the light of day. And so what do you do, right? What do you do during those first four to five years? And, and a lot of distilleries will, will buy bulk whiskey from somewhere else and private label it, pass it off as their own. We said from the get go that we wouldn't do that. Um, so we, we did make a little vodka. We made a little unaged corn whiskey in the early days. And with the help of our consulting distiller, Dave Pickerel, who's since passed, um, he kind of taught us how to, to uh, use some smaller barrels to age a little faster um, in smaller quantities. You can get more oak extraction out of the barrels. So we had some 15 and then 25 gallon barrels that we were able to release more like in two years, three years, that type of stuff as we built our supply demand curve. But um, you know, today it's all 53s and it's, it's all, you know, aged. We're really shooting for a minimum of five years. And we're just about, we're just about there at this point. So it's, it's a very interesting, you know, to make an analogy with, you know, raising a crop. It's you, you build your farm, you buy your tractors, you build your machinery or you, your machine sheds. Um, you plant it and you harvest it five years later. 
but then you got to plant four more crops before you're able to harvest your first one. So if you think cash flow is an issue for a typical grain farm, try turning it into whiskey. So, you know, but the good, the good and bad part of that is that it does keep out some of the competition, right? I mean, we're well capitalized and um, we've, we've maintained all the ownership to date. You know, you're looking at it and um, we're, we're debt free and we're profitable. And, and that's a good place to be in eight years. Yeah, I would say. I, I had no idea. I thought maybe you guys brought some corn in from different varieties. You grow it all, even the wild type varieties, huh? the different that hasn't been grown in your area before, probably maybe even. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're growing things here that haven't been grown here like barley in a long time. And, and there's a learning curve. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. you know, our first crop of barley sucked. Um, and, and, and it's, it's uh, still a little tricky for us to get a reliable barley crop here. We're just not in the geography for it, but we, we um, got our hands on some, uh, 200 year old genetics that came from Monticello. Yeah. Uh, and, and for corn, for corn, yeah, for yeah. corn. And really found out that, uh, 200 year old, um, open pollinated genetics developed on the East coast don't exactly cohabitate well with 2020 growing season in Northern Illinois. Varieties of corn have changed a lot since the time that Thomas Jefferson planted them. So but didn't you tell me, Jamie, like pre-prohibition, wasn't, wasn't a lot of whiskey grown in that area or a lot of corn for whiskey? Uh, Peoria, Illinois was the epicenter of bourbon production prior to prohibition. There were over 72, 73 distilleries in Peoria. Um, after prohibition, most of it, most of it moved to Kentucky, frankly, because that's where you could bootleg easier during prohibition. And then it, once it was re-legalized, it just took off from there again. Huh. Interesting. What, what, what'd you guys know about distilling before you got into it? it were you guys the ones distilling it yourself or did you hire somebody to do it or just figured it out? Well, yeah. So we didn't know much. And in, in fact, you know, <clears throat> as a, as a consumer, you can make beer or wine at home legally for your own consumption, right? That's perfectly legal. But if you distill a single drop of beverage alcohol, it's a felony and you'll run into people. We do all the time. Say, oh, no, no, it's legal. If I'm making it for, no, it's not. I mean, to be clear, if you distill whiskey for yourself, it's a felony. And so for us, there was no real good way to practice. And when we first decided that we needed a consultant to help us, this guy named Dave Pickerel was recommended. And he's the former master distiller at Maker's Mark. He was retired from that. He had a consulting business um, and he was highly sought after. And we had to pay him a whole bunch of money to bring him down to interview him so that maybe he'd take us as a client. I think and, he interviewed us. Yeah, basically. Yes. And one of the questions he asked us, he said, so tell me about your distilling experience. You know, I, I, and we said, we don't have any. He said, well, no, like, you know, when you're working in the garage or, you know, on the stove, what have you done? And we said, we haven't. Dave, we haven't done any. He says, that's the right answer. He said, if you'd said you had, I wouldn't take you as a client because my reputation's on the line. And, and uh, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, he taught us everything that we knew. He, he came here, helped design our equipment with Vendome in Kentucky. That's who makes our still. He helped us assemble everything, develop our recipes. And then basically we had a crash course for about a week, 10 days, where he taught us how to run everything. And we have standard operating procedures and you know, we learned at his knee and he was always and a he was speed, dial. Yeah, speed dial away when we had questions. And believe me, we did. And, and uh, we were fortunate that 
after about <coughs> four years or so of, of hand-holding, you know, it, less and less every year, uh, we pretty much the training wheels were off and we were on our own and it wasn't too much longer after that that he passed away. So uh, we were glad that we, we gleaned the knowledge that we got from him when we could. I'd like to think we have a few things too. Yeah, about farming for sure. Definitely about farming. I can remember one day where I was on the phone with Dave and asked him, you know, what his thoughts on how you make bourbon from popcorn. And he laughed and said, I don't believe it's ever been done before. And, uh, you know, about 10 days later, we had popcorn planted and I called him and told him how to do it. Right. And, and so you know, he, we, he's the guy behind brands like Whistlepig. You know, that's that's a Dave. That's a Dave brand. So he was interested out in Vermont <laughs> learning how to grow their own rye. And so he was learn he was learning about farming at the same time we were learning about distilling. So were you both, uh, Jamie and Nick, were you guys in the trenches doing the distilling during this training period? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you guys are you train the people you got on board now. Yeah. So for first, you know, a few weeks, Jamie and I were there every day. And then, you know, Jamie kind of stepped back a little bit to deal with more of the the management portion of it. And I did the operational portion of it. And when we finally brought somebody on board, um, you know, I, I was responsible for training him and actually Rob, Rob Wallace is our master distiller. Now he's been on the team for six and a half years, pushing seven years now. And, you know, he came to this business uh, with just like us, no real specific distilling experience, but had a palate, uh, had a work ethic and, and knew how to drive a forklift and, and also a willingness to use a mop. You know, some of the main things to, to be a distiller. And, uh, you know, went through the, the standard operating procedures, taught him what to do. and was able to step away because we found that making whiskey quickly became the easy portion of it and selling whiskey became the more challenging portion of it. So having somebody uh, here to make it while we could run operations and, and build a brand was absolutely important. To Rob's credit, uh, he, he had the initiative. He enrolled himself at a place called Harriet Watt University out of Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, got his master's degree in distillation and fermentation sciences and subsequently wrote his master's thesis on how varietals of corn affect the flavor of whiskey. So he totally bought into to what we were doing. Uh, and, and, you know, today he's the teacher. We're not the teacher anymore. And, and it's, we're, we're just eternally blessed to have somebody on the team that's, that's like that. He, he just talks about what he's doing until our eyes glass over. And we shake our head and say, go do it. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Well, hey, Jordan, I want to hear about this brand building a little more. Yeah, I was going to ask him, what, what, what was the harder part, building the brand or actually figuring out how to distill the whiskey? For sure, building the brand and, and sales. And, and, and we heard that a lot. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, you, you go to these early distilling, you know, events where you're learning about being a distiller. There's a lot of other wannabes at conferences. And, you know, you hear these other distillers that have gone before you. And they talk a lot about, hey, guys, the easy part's making it. The hard part is, is sales and distribution. And, you know, we all kind of, oh, yeah, our stuff will go. It's the hard part. I mean, for sure. And part of that is is because still alcohol sales and distribution is, is heavily, heavily protected and, and uh, regulated in the United States. And, and consolidated. Each, and each state is different. And, <laughs> and um you know, it's the unholy trinity of big business, politics, and organized crime. And it has been, and it still is. And, and penetrating that market is tricky. And, um, you know, we're in over 700 locations in Illinois today. Um, we have to work with a distributor for the vast majority of the volume of that. And, um, you know, they got you a little bit by the short hairs. And that's always, that's always the trick, right, is, 
is we have to, you know, they have a portfolio of whiskeys, not just ours. You know, they got a dozen or more and, and they don't really care because legally we have to go through that. And they don't really care whether they're selling our stuff or somebody else's. And so, you know, Nick and other people have to go out into the field, convince a, an establishment to carry our products, but then actually can't close the sale. Then we got to go bring the distributor in there and wow. handle the paperwork, collect the money and deliver the product. And they make as much or more on every bottle than we do. And we made it and effectively sold it. So, you know, we're trying to get some of those laws adjusted to allow a little bit more direct sales and flexibility. We're having modest success so far and, and continue to work. I do want to add though, that if our distributor watches this, we love them very much. Yes. Yes. Uh, And in all seriousness, you know, we recognize that we don't want to be part of a team that's, that's physically delivered at 700 locations. You know, we, that, that one of the big challenges and opportunities it has been understanding how to work in a system that's existed, you know, when Al Capone was alive still. And, and, you know, those, those distributors are not used to working with people at our scale. And, and so they're, they're used to being order takers because the, the 7-Eleven buys Jack Daniels because the shelf is empty and the shelf is empty because somebody's grandfather taught them to drink Jack Daniels as a brand. Whereas what we're doing today is we, we have to build it from the grassroots and, and create a customer base like Jack Daniels did 150 years ago. So we've got to create a demand and an awareness of our product so that they, they pull from the shelf and at the same time create some confidence in the product for our distribution sales team who's going to walk into a location and say, hey, you don't have whiskey acres and here's why you should. So, you know, we're, we're building a brand from the top and the bottom down with, with the goal of ultimately having, having everyone part of this aware of the products and, and, you know, creating a, a snowball effect for the brand. A big key to us really with, you know, having that pulled through the product was to persuade consumers that our products were very transparent, right? We were very transparent. You know, we, we only, we only, that's why we drew a line in the sand. We only put in a bottle what we distill ourselves and we only distill what we grow, period. And so we won't do anything to jeopardize that because we want to be very transparent with that. And not a lot of our competitors are. And then with that, you know, quality matters. You know, we grow superior grains. We think varieties matter. Um, and, and we tell that story and slowly but surely we're, we're persuading the market. So much so that we're, we're, we're getting ready to ramp back up our second shift. We'll be distilling every day on a double shift you know, all year long, um, to, to meet demand. And, and, uh, you know, pretty soon we'll be producing all, you know, somewhere in excess of 120 to, uh, you know, 130,000 bottles a year. Oh, wow. what yeah, are, you, can you go to other States yet, Jamie, or is that more? So we had the, Nick and I had the great fortune <laughs> of launching the brand in Nebraska in mid March of 2020. Um, you know, not a, not a great time. The, the COVID yeah. world shutting everything down as we drove back. And, and um, uh, so we're probably going to have to go relaunch out there in Nebraska at some point. But we do have, you know, a loyal fan base in Nebraska. It's just not as big as we'd like to see right now. Um, we had some distribution in Wisconsin, but we, we broke up with our distributor up there. And uh, coming out of COVID, we really kind of decided to refocus our efforts in Illinois. There's a lot of business to be had here. So we're, we're right now fairly focused on the Illinois market, but 
yes, I think we will expand regionally over the next coming years. What did uh what did your first bottle look like? Like you guys got one laying around? Like very like what it looked like uh branding wise? Honestly, so pretty similar for, for the, the products that were you know, our, our bourbon uh was kind of our first main product that we had. And uh other than just additions like for instance, our, our bourbon bottle would would say bourbon on it. Um but as it got older, we were able to add the word straight, so straight bourbon. Uh, we updated the age statement and that's what's on the shelf today. So, you know, we did a ton of work at the beginning to make sure that uh, we had something that, you know, transcended time, so to speak. And we work, we work really hard on, on, on this logo that I think you can see here. Oh, and you know, that's that, that ear of corn that looks like a bottle. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really trying to tell a story with a picture, right? That, you know, we grow everything that goes into that bottle. And, and I think that's been pretty effective. I think another, another key here, you know, Jamie used the word transparency. And I think that's, that goes across everything that we do and everything we put in a bottle. But I'd also say relatability. Um, you know, just, just number one, letting people physically come here, uh, be relatable to the, the product and the people and the place is, is something that a lot of distilleries don't give their customers access to. Uh, and just being an open book about you know, they're, they're, some of our best Facebook posts are from Jamie or Jim in the combine or in the cab in the spring talking about the day that that whiskey began its journey as a, as a seedling. And, you know, we, we have an open door about what we do within the distillery. The only thing we do, we're not fully transparent about and we're proud of it is, is some of the, the genetics we've discovered that, that we believe make superior distillate. Other than that, I don't think you can find a distillery really in the world that, that offers customers more insight into the entire process of farming and whiskey making. As we know. And Dad could probably talk a little bit about this, but one of the things that we pride ourselves in, so, you know, th this conference room is, is part of a, a larger visitor center that we built on the farm here in basically the start of 2019. And it, it's a large facility um, that is open to the public three days a week on the weekends, basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we, consider ourselves fortunate to have the opportunity to tell the story of production agriculture to our customers. And every month we get, what, 2,000 or so customers come through here. Uh, and, you know, many of them take a tour and, and, you know, dad or me or Nick or some of our staff will tell them all about farming and, you know, what, what corn is used for and why and why we use biotechnology on some of our acres and why we don't use biotechnology on others and what that means and what what does organic mean and why use pesticides or why not use pesticides and you know we're really the tip of the spear in answering a lot of those questions i mean you've done a lot of that yeah it's interesting uh it's it's very enjoyable to have people come out and ask questions uh and you're sometimes amused one of one of the common questions we used to get frequently was well, this stock has two ears on it. You know, how many ears does the stock have? And, and of course, you want the, the philosophy or thought and pattern there was that the more ears you have, the better. And then you, you, you enter into agronomy a little bit and talk about the agronomy of the plant and why you only want one ear on the stock. And, and, and they, they pick up on that. And then there's, there's more questions that follow. But uh, it, for many of these people, it's the first time they've ever set foot on a farm. I, I recall one day when there was a uh, a couple here. We were we were chatting, and he was an attorney in Chicago, 
and his wife and I with and I and uh, was with him. We, my wife was here. We were talking one evening. It was a nice day and happened to have some sweet corn planted next to the distillery. And I said, "Have you ever had any fresh sweet corn?" And she replied, "No." I guess we do have fresh sweet corn in the grocery store. And I said, "Well, no fresh fresh sweet corn." And I said, "Let's go pick some sweet corn. You can take it home and and, and uh, eat it tonight." And so we went out into the field and we were picking sweet corn. And she was just absolutely thrilled and never picked corn in her life. And she was picking sweet corn and having the time of her life. And uh, I looked down and I said, well, you know, this is a first for me, too. I've never picked sweet corn with somebody at high heels. <laughs> well, one of my favorite uh, <laughs> moments one of our team had was a, a few years ago. It was either during harvest or they were moving uh, grain. And uh, we've got a cooling system that's outside. that's very susceptible to these wings. And we're constantly having to, to clean out filters because they get clogged up. And, and one of the things we're, we talk a lot about our sustainability that we have here. And, uh, and this intern says to us, she goes, guys, I'm, I really like what we do around here, but I just, I really wish we could figure out a way not to kill so many bees. <laughs> and we, it took us a while to figure out what in the hell she was talking about. And she thought every time she was cleaning that filter out and those, pulling those little red things out, that those were truly bees wings. And, you know, we, I think we all had this moment. This gal's sharp as a tack. And that things like that, that we take for granted of understanding and appreciating. And that when we're communicating with the public, we need to realize that most are not blessed with the, the, the opportunity to grow up on a farm and be part of this. And so we need to, to really have our, our messaging in a way that they can understand and relate and, and start from scratch. And, and, and one other thing, to this young lady's credit, that I, I do have to pay her some respects, two things. She now has a tattoo of a bee on her arm, and she works at Sazerac. So, <laughs> so where are most of you guys as customers? Are you, are you like your loyal drinkers? Are you uh, is it like farmers supporting farmers, or some of these uh, city folk people that never been on a farm before? Yeah, we we love our farmers for sure. I mean, that's we have a soft spot for for that. Um, but but our our customers come from a, a wide range across the state um it's always a surprise to us you know we get this i mentioned a couple thousand visitors a month we've done some research on those visitors and about 25 percent of them are what we would call local they're you know from 10 miles from here that kind of radius repeat local customers about 50 percent are chicago and chicago suburbs so they've driven an hour or so to get here typically and the amazing thing is almost 25% of our, of our visitors drive over an hour, over 100 miles or more um, to get to us. And on any given weekend, you know, prior and post COVID anyway, you know, we'll have at least a half a dozen states and three or four foreign countries, you know, every, every weekend. And, and um, that's always just interesting to us. But uh, still, the you know the vast majority. I mean, ninety percent of our business is from Illinois, and of that, the vast majority is Chicago and the suburbs. Well, who do you expect your customers to be when you first started the business? Local farmers or anybody? That's your amount of here goes. Nobody's ever going to come here. Yeah, that's been a surprise, <laughs> right? You know, we're not in a tourist destination, and we really didn't know what to expect, and. We started in a little 400 square foot building with, with a tasting room, and and uh, you know three years later we were breaking ground on a 4,000 square foot building, 
to handle all our visitors. And we still don't think it's big enough, but you know, it is what it is at this point. So, um, you had any, you had any weddings yet? Your wedding venue out there yet or? Oh yeah. We, we, um, we're very particular though. Um, we are open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to the public. And as I told you, the vast majority of them drive an hour or more to get here. And so the worst thing we can do is have them invest their time and effort to get here and then have a sign on the door that says close for wedding today. And so um, we, we jokingly say that we don't do weddings. We do second weddings. So if you want to get married on a Monday through a Thursday, where your where where your place Sunday after five thirty or Saturday before noon? Yeah, right, right. And we do, and we, do. Yeah. <laughs> we we do get those, but you know, and, and uh, we do probably I don't know maybe four to five, six of them a, a year, and we could do lots more. And we've talked about opening up a dedicated event center, but there's a lot of issues with that. That zoning is one of them, and I don't I, think we really want to go I, down. I think the road. number one is you're looking at three people who have no desire. Man, yeah, something exactly. That's you know, us. Yeah, at a certain point, you know, what do you want to do, and how much do you want to do, and how much is enough, and yeah. family time, and all those things get to be balancing act, right? The kids have approached us about we own a bunch of different buildings and properties, and turn a few of them into wedding venues. And I'm like, man, you have a great uh, captive audience for your whiskey, there, Jamie. You know, yeah. like, like, hey, yeah, you can open, whiskey. All Kevin, time. if you want to open a wedding venue here, we'll, we can talk. Exactly. No, I don't. That's a lot of work. Like you said, a lot more work. So funny. What what does it look like getting into liquor stores? Like, do you have to go to like each individual liquor stores? Are you guys like targeting chains? Um, yes. How's, how's shelf space even work in the liquor industry? I haven't, we haven't talked to too many people on it. So crazy battle. You mentioned that there's like six, seven, big boys in the space like do they do they control the shelf space yeah you know so there, there's in, in illinois specifically there's a you know one big retailer in particular that has a couple decision makers there so a lot of what what i do is is kind of managing the relationship with with those folks to make sure that they're making sure that all of our products are cascading through their 40 plus locations uh to that other other side of it, though, is there's there's no shortage of liquor stores that are single single units with a single you know mom and pop couple, and we found that some of those locations are single best retailers. You know, a place with 800 square feet uh, with a limited whiskey shelf and a well curated whiskey shelf for us can sell a whole lot more whiskey than a place that's got uh, you know 4,000 square feet dedicated to 300 different bottles. Uh, but we need to be participating in all of those places for potential transactions. So. We, we deal with all that. We, we refer to that as what we call off-premise business, uh, where we you go there, you buy it, you take it home, and drink it off-premise, you drink it at home. Um, we also have on-premise business, which is bars and restaurants. And most of our success there has been dealing with owner-operators uh, that that want to value, that value us the same way they want to be valued, where people are buying from those who are actually making it. And uh, the number one thing that we're after is a placement on a cocktail menu. Uh, what, what we found is just having a bottle on the back bar uh, isn't often good enough to make depletions happen. Uh, you got to just think about how people operate. You know, when you sit down to have a drink, you sit down for a dinner, you open up the menu and you're going to go right. You're, you're going to order something that's written out for you. And if you don't have something spelled out for a customer, your odds are far less likely that you're going to be, be selling to that customer. So we spent a lot of time 
lobbying, vying, elbowing for space on that cocktail menu. And a lot of times we'll, we'll get the work done. We'll establish a relationship. We'll have everything done. And that guy, that GM will, will move on to another location and we get to start over again. So the, the, the other thing that's pretty important, Jordan, is, is that customer pull through. If, if we do a good job creating that demand at the consumer level, one of the best things that, you know, we've taught our consumers is to ask for us by name. So, you know, when they're at a restaurant, when they're, when they walk into a store, it's, do you have any whiskey acres? And when a store or a location hears that enough times, if they don't carry us, they begin to wonder, maybe they should be, right? And, and one of the places that helps us a lot is, are these specialty products? Because these are very limited runs. They're short. They sell out in hours, typically. And, and what happens is there are people that just start, they start dialing for drinks. They're just calling stores. Do you have any Whiskey Acres Blue Popcorn? No? Okay. And calling and calling and calling. And that stores are sitting there answering on a Friday afternoon on a release day, you know, do they have any of this? And they think, gosh, we're really missing, we're really missing out if we're not carrying some of that stuff. So those are the kinds of things that really help us gin up a market, no pun intended. No, we're not going to make gin. <laughs> I find, yeah, I find it interesting. You guys are targeting like the bars quite a bit too, getting on the cocktail menus. I, I guess I never really even thought about that. I guess when I go order a drink and I'm like, man, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I should try it. And then I'm going That's, around all over town asking for it. No one has it. <laughs> it's all about trial use at, at bars. You know, pe consumers are are much more likely to spend, you know, 10 to $14 to try something new in a drink than they are to go to the shelf and pick up a 50 or $60 bottle that they don't know. And so getting that trial use is important. And if you court, if you court bartender or the person, the general manager, whoever's in charge of making that first contact with a customer, and we can get them out here, they can appreciate the scope behind the problem and the story behind the problem, behind the product. And then they can relate that to customers across the top of the bar and build more connection with those customers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, we'll try to wrap this up. We've been on here about an hour, but what, what's the operation look like three, five years down the road? What do you guys envision? So overall, overall farm operation, maybe not just the distillery. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're positioned to be able to do more with less. Not that necessarily we have a, a, a planned obsolescence for our acreage that we're, we're intending to shrink, but in full disclosure, we're, we're in an area here where there's a lot of interest in solar. I think we're gonna end up with a lot of solar panels on a number of our acres. Um, and so by nature, you know, we're gonna produce energy uh, just like we did with ethanol, but we're gonna do that with a solar panel now. And we're going to have fewer acres of, of production grain. And so as we do that, we'll continue to focus on some of these specialty products. Um, that's a big part of our future. Um, but we'll still be raising commodity corn, both for the distillery and elsewhere. We didn't ever really get to it. But right now, only about 10% of our acreage goes for the distillery. So we, we've got plenty of room to grow the distilling and, and still maintain enough acreage. Um, and... Probably our biggest area of growth is we have now developed our, and are in the early stages. We're in the, in the process of getting a patent on a particular variety that we have bred. 
um, using some open pollinated public varieties. We've crossbred a new corn that we think we're, we're literally just now making whiskey out of it. But we think it's got all the attributes that the market is going to look for um, in flavor and in distilling characteristics. And we're in the process of getting a patent for its use in making bourbon. And so I think that will be a big part of our future. Jamie, you ever thought of uh, having partners in other states on their ground or? Uh, not not so much we need ground. We, we may need more distilling capacity. Yeah, I'm just and, saying if, if you have farmers in uh, another area that they wanted to put up a, you know, put up a similar operation like you guys and partner with you and do something. You so, know. so we have talked to some like that. Um, they tend to be for a, a number of reasons independent, but you know, the distilling world, we had a lot of help all, along the way and, and we have tried to pay that forward and, and we've helped other distillers and other farms um, get started. We're, we're actually, I have to be a little careful, but we're actually in discussions with a, a an Illinois grain farm today to maybe partner up on a malting facility. Um, I think that's an area that we could maybe expand into is malting grain. Um, we have uh, barley here that we grow that we malt for use in not only our bourbons, but eventually what will be a category for American single malt, much like a scotch. Um, and so that might be a growth area that we would partner with a farm on. Um, just today, I, I signed an NDA to take a look at uh, acquiring a, another distillery out of state. And, and I don't think we will, but it's something that crops up periodically and there might be opportunities to expand that way. And if I'm being honest, sometimes we get the other end of things. We have investors and, and uh, businesses that sometimes contact us to see if we're interested in taking on uh, a growth partner or investment. And, and uh, we usually at least listen to those conversations. What's the valuations like? Similar to the tequila business, I've had a couple of tequila, uh, you know, people wanting to use some of my money to do to get into the tequila business. I, I I'm not George. Yeah, go ahead. I'm not George, as good looking as George Clooney, Kevin. But if you want to offer me a few hundred million, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to sit down. I'll even buy your first round. No, I hear you. I mean, it's yeah, it's crazy what some of those tequila companies are selling for out there. It's like wow, the brands anyway. When you build that brand up, so it's yeah, there's a. There's a whiskey company that just a month ago, Wilderness Trail, just sold. I believe they sold 70% of the business for $680 million. Oh, wow. No kidding. Wow. Awesome. So, yeah. And that's and that's why we see that, as you guys are saying, it's it's difficult to build a brand, but it's uh, very rewarding if you can weather the storm and, and, you know, hopefully build that brand and build some loyalty and customer loyalty. So, yeah, I think that's awesome what you guys are doing. So, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's I think that's about it I had on my end. Do you guys have any questions for us or anything? Or no, but we'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, for sure. Anything we missed? Anything else you guys wanted to talk about? Or no? Pretty good. Well, I think on the grain side, the farming side, quite frankly, <coughs> we could produce an awful lot of uh, blue popcorn for a very large distillery, or maybe it would be a uh, unique variety of some sort. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense a lot. Yeah, I see that. I, yeah, hmm, interesting. Yeah, you had a, you know, we talked about the adventures that farmers have taken into specialty corns and specialty products. But if you've got a moat around one of those specialty products, yeah, for sure, for sure. So that makes a lot of sense. 
So are you guys expected to get into this crappy weather? Yeah, it's going to be, they said 35, 45 below windshield and snow blowing and I think four to six inches, but like you guys are saying, so we'll see. Hopefully it'll get past here soon, but might cause a little pinch for the holidays. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we told everybody to just take Friday off. We're going to yeah. knock off a day earlier and call it good. I can see that for sure. So oh, uh, we're sure. Yeah, before we get off, when do, uh, where do people, where can people go to buy your whiskey? They got to drive all the way out to you or buy it online or can people out of state buy it? Actually, I'll see if, it's, if KC is on the uh, list. Here. All right. So a few options. So obviously you can come to us. We always love that, right? I mean, obviously the margins are always better when you come to us. We can cut out a middleman, but uh um, yes, we're open every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday all year round with the exception of this holiday period. But um, uh, you can come. Our, our website has our hours at whiskeyacres.com. You can come visit us. You have, we have a cocktail service here. We've got tours. We've got a retail shop, lovely fireplace with couches and tables, and it's a great place to, to spend some time. Um, you can find us on, if you go to our website at whiskeyacres.com. We have a we have a location finder for locations in Illinois and Nebraska that can show you where your nearest uh, retail or restaurant partner is, is at that serves our products. Um, and then sealbox.com, S-E-E-L-B-A-C-H-S.com is a third-party retailer for us. You can actually, if you go to our website, whiskeyacres.com, there's a link at the top that says buy online. And uh, they can ship direct to about 20 different states. Uh, and that list changes almost by the day and we're still not 100% sure of the how and why of that. Uh, one you know, mentioned that we're working on some some things within the state. One of the things we're working on is to be able to ship directly to customers. You know, that would give us access to, to a lot more folks. Today, we can't do that. So we've got to ship it to D.C. and then they ship it from D.C. to one of those 20-ish states. But uh, if, if you're not able to make it here, that, that website is your best tool to get something. Sealbox.com. And just once you get there, just type in Whiskey Acres and it'll take you to our products. Or whiskeyacres.com and click buy online. Yeah. It'll take you right there to a pre-populated page. Cool. Sounds good. Sounds good. That'll work. I appreciate you guys taking the time to do it. Yeah, heck you yeah. bet, guys. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Good luck. Hey, send us a link to this when you get it posted. We'll, we'll do it. Sure. We'll do it. Thanks, Jim. Right. Thanks, Nick. See you guys. All right. Have a good night.